you would uh, open your scriptures to the book of Jude. I'm going to let Norman worry about Mark. We're going to go to Jude. This has nothing to do with the song by the Beatles either. Where's that coming from? It's my wife, guys, no problem. Now you know what she thinks about my preaching. Book of Jude was written probably 65, 67 AD. So Christ had been gone approximately 30 years, so this is one of the later books written. Jude, we understand from our study of Scripture as well, was one of the brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep in mind that the, that the Scripture, the books, well, we, when we talk about Scripture, let me back up just saying, when we talk about Scripture, we talk about it as being the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. In the days of Jesus, the Old Testament was already set, Genesis through Malachi. After the ministry of Jesus, for approximately the first century, the New Testament was growing as churches received letters from men who were considered apostles, leaders within the early church. Okay? And that put together the books that we call the New Testament. Please understand, the church did not determine what it was. That's Roman Catholicism, where the church says what scripture is or not. Okay? The New Testament was formed as churches accepted as authoritative, these books written by apostles, those who knew Jesus. So it's important to understand, this is God's word. We use it we didn't put our stamp on it because if we approved what was scripture or not, who's the final authority? That makes us the final authority, and we're not. God is. Please stand for the reading of scripture this morning. Book of Jude. I'll read beginning in verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Let's pray. Father God, we do 
we do thank you for the privilege that we have to to study your word we pray that you would bless our time together this morning and use it dear father to encourage to strengthen if need be to confront but may we see jesus christ high and lifted up for it's in his name that we pray amen please be seated As we look at the book of Jude, the context as we get to this last part of the book needs to be established for us. Please understand, when you go back to the first part of the book, that Jude was writing and he, and he, and he tells the people, it was my intention to write uh, a nice, encouraging kind of a letter but I found it necessary to appeal to you to contend for the faith in other words it became a letter that was strongly exhorting the people you've got a battle to fight you must contend for the faith and the reason that he was led to do this was because certain people have crept in unnoticed and the picture is, brothers and sisters, is the idea of the attack coming from within. When he says certain people have crept in unnoticed, that was those who came in whose motives, whose beliefs really didn't, uh, weren't really made known until they were already in positions of authority. In many ways, guys, when you look at the very existence of the PCA, you have an example of what happens, you know. Uh, here again, all of a sudden, within the church itself, you had a need for a Bible-believing structure, denomination. Okay? And that, in essence, is the history of the church. When you look at the divisions that take place, in many ways, it's because the faithful, those who believe Sola Scriptura, Solo Christo, Solo Deo Gloria, all those great Reformed truths, men in their wisdom have slipped away from that and preaching a different gospel, not preaching the very word of God. And so it's within this context that Jude says, you have to contend for the faith because this is happening. Okay? Now again, uh, this is approximately 30 years after the ascension of the, G, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Paul's missionary journeys and all this kind of stuff, that here again the church is being attacked not from outside but from inside. The section of the, that begins in verse 5 and then takes us all the way through verse 16 is different examples of this all the way back to the Old Testament. And now one of the things that's interesting, and I want you to look at this for a minute. We have to deal with this first. Now I, this is verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Okay, that's the picture of those who were led out of Egypt, remember, after the Passover and and the blood on the door frame and, and them being told, get out of here. Uh, and yet when you travel 
with that journey. As you read through the scripture, you see over and over again where the Lord had to purge that number of people because you had folks who said they were one thing, but in reality they were not. Now, what I want you to see here, and this is important, this would be my number one point if you're thinking about that, then we'll get to the others in that next paragraph. It says that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Theological point number one. Jesus did not come into existence when he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was present from all of eternity with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Okay? There was never a time that Jesus was not. Now, he became flesh and blood in order to save us from our sins when he was conceived in the womb of Mary. But Jesus Christ has always been, and that's an important fact, because those in the Old Testament, before Jesus walked upon this earth, were looking forward to their salvation with the Messiah to come. We look back to the Messiah who came, as Paul says in the book of Galatians, at that perfect time in history and walked upon this earth to accomplish that salvation. Folks in the Old Testament, brothers and sisters, were saved the very same way that we are saved, faith in Jesus Christ. The only difference is they looked forward to his coming. We look back to the fact that he came, but all of it is focused on the person of Jesus Christ. You see this in John chapter 2 when John the Baptist sees Jesus Christ and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Who was the Lamb he, that John the Baptist was referring to? The Passover Lamb. Passover Lamb was one of those visible signs to remind the Jews of the promise of that Savior to come. You see the reality of this later in John chapter 2 when Jesus drives the money changers out of the temple. And they ask him, what gives you the right to do this? And he says, tear this down and in three days I'll build it back up. What was the center of Jewish worship? All of the elements of the temple pointed forward to whom? When you walk into the courtyard, the first thing you see is the altar of burnt offering where the lamb was sacrificed. Who's the lamb? The next piece of furniture was the laver where the priest would cleanse his hands before he went into the temple itself. Who cleanses us from our sins? You walk into the temple. To the left is the candlestick which gave light to the room. Who said, I am the light of the world? Other side of the room was the table of showbread where 12 loaves of bread were put out daily demonstrating God's faithfulness to the people who said, I am the bread of life. The altar of incense in the back of the room represented the prayers of the priest being offered up for the people continuously. Who is our advocate pleading for us at the very right hand of God the Father? There was a veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. What happened to that veil when Jesus Christ said it is finished? 
transformed from top to bottom. The way is open as we come in and we will see the Ark of the Covenant upon which sat the mercy seat. As the high priest would come into that room, he would sprinkle the blood of the lamb. John said, who was the lamb? He would sprinkle the blood of that lamb on the mercy seat, thus forgiveness of the sins because of that shed blood. And oh, the Ark of the Covenant, remember, represented God's presence with his people. That's why it was always the center, center of the camp, center of the march. The favorite name for Jesus in the Old Testament was what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. So please understand, guys, only one way of salvation throughout all of the history of mankind. Jesus. Pre-cross, they believed in the promise of his coming. They looked forward to that. After the cross, we look back to the fact that he came. Please don't ever lose sight of that. Jesus in Jesus Christ alone. Now to the paragraph that we're going to look at. Verses 17 through 23. There was an issue. Thus Jude is led to write a paper, a letter to these people to encourage them. And that involved those who crept in and again the idea of crept in and, and, and guys when you look back to the history of the church and you see the influence of liberalism uh, just finished reading a book about J. Gresham Machen guys guys, a great hero of the faith uh, you, 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 if you don't know anything about Machen you need to know about, about Machen I suggest you read anything you can about him a great hero of the faith uh, battled against the liberalism that had crept into the Presbyterian Church in the North. Thus, Westminster Seminary, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, came into play as he was kicked out of the denomination. I, I can remember in high school reading a book, The Good Earth. You remember that book? You know who wrote that? Pearl S. Buck, a Presbyterian elder who led the charge to kick Machen out of the denomination. She'd grown up in China. Her parents had missionaries of the Presbyterian Church. Why the PCA come, had to come into existence? Same thing happened in the Southern Church. Now, pl please understand, the Southern Church came into existence, guys, maybe not because of the best of motives. Uh, 1861, war's about to start. The desire of the Presbyterian Church is to keep united, to help unite the country after the war. Okay, so the Southerners go up to Philadelphia where the first, uh, first General Assembly uh, met and uh, the very first resolution, Gardner Spring Resolution, that the Presbyterian Church go on favor of the Union. So the Southerners got up, walked out, went down to Augusta, Georgia, and that was the beginning of the Southern Presbyterian Church. Guys, it was a godly church godly heritage, faithful preaching, James Henley Thornwell, Robert Dabney, Benjamin Palmer, all the riches of the preaching 
faithfulness. But what happened less than a hundred years later? And you know what? There's not a single liberal preacher that walked into a presbytery meeting and said, guys, I'm liberal, here I am, you've got to accept me. They got in because we didn't know the word as we ought. Please understand that it's our privilege to have a faith that is based upon a real person who accomplished a real act of life, death, and resurrection. We are to contend for that faith. That's the reason why Jude wrote this letter. But now there are those who cause divisions Worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Jude writes, keep yourselves in the love of God. How do we do that? Building up our faith, praying, and waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to get all of it done today. I understand that. Uh, That's for God's providence later in time. But we want to look specifically at the first one, which involves building up. The principle, keep yourselves in the love of God, is a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a request. To keep means to hold on to, to attend carefully, to guard that which has been given to you. And so the idea of keeping the faith means that I've been given this biblical heritage and it's my responsibility to keep it, to maintain it. It's eros tense, which in the Greek means it's a one-time act when we become believers, when we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We are his. We're in the faith. As I mentioned, it's imperative. It's a command. And it's also active voice, which means I'm the one that's responsible for doing this. So it's my responsibility as we wrestle with Scripture to keep ourselves in the love of God. It's a responsibility that we have as we go through all the daily affairs of life. We'll talk more about the significance of what that means in just a little bit. But it means that I've got to work on my relationship with the Lord. It means that I'm responsible to do the things that it takes to make sure that I remain faithful to the Lord, that I remain within that setting. So that's the imperative. That's the main verb. Now all you English teachers, we have three participles that describe how we do that. We'll only deal with the first one today. And that first one is building yourselves up in your most holy faith. So the principle is keeping ourselves in the love of God. 
Okay? Hanging on to that faith. Remaining solid in that faith. The first way in which how we do that is to build ourselves up in the love of God. This is talking about growth, Christian growth. Please understand, it's a battle for the mind, a battle for the heart. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to, to this world. That's the challenge. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. When we become believers... Okay. There is a radical change that takes place within our lives. And it begins with the mental. It begins with the heart. That's when we come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. We pledge our life unto him. And it is ours to serve him in all that we do. That's the beginning of the journey. We would refer to that as justification and adoption. If you remember your confession of faith, those are acts, one-time acts. I am justified when I claim the name of Jesus Christ. His blood washes me of, of my sin, and I stand justified before the Lord, not because of what I did, but because of what Jesus did. And I am at that point in time adopted. He reached down, he grabbed me, he brought me up, he made me his. He adopted us. That too is a one-time act. Justification and adoption set the stage for sanctification, which is a process. That process begins when we enter into that relationship with the Lord Jesus and continues on till the day that the Lord calls us home. That's the growth process. That's the building up that takes place through the remainder of our days. Now, it'd be really nice if that growth, if that sanctification would be a line going right up. That means that, man, I'm growing fantastic every day, getting better and better and better is I seek to be what the Lord wants me to be. And what are, what are the tools? Well, study of Scripture, spending time in the Word, prayer, spending time with the Lord, worship, coming together with the, with the saints on the Lord's Day to be encouraged, to be strengthened, and if need be, to be confronted, because that's part of our growth too. And oh, the, 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 the beauty of what you all are going to celebrate next Sunday in terms of the sacraments, God has given us those visible reminders of what it means to be a Christian, to recognize what Jesus has done and what he's called us to do. This is all part of that process, but part of the tragedy of it is, and this is where the challenge comes into play, it looks more like the stock market. And sometimes those lows get pretty low. 
Please understand, that's part of the battle, brothers and sisters, as we seek to be built up. Okay? David, a man after God's own heart. But how would you describe that scoundrel's, excuse me, how would you describe that guy's life? He's a scoundrel. But when he was confronted with his sin, he recognized. But that's, that's life, guys. As we live within the midst of this world, as we seek to be what Jesus wants us to be. A couple of things that we have to deal with. Now remember, it's a battle for the mind, okay? Uh, we live in a world uh, governed by pragmatism. Can you define pragmatism? By the way, that, that's a philosophy that's purely American, okay? Ends justify the means. If it works, that makes it right. Results determine truth. For example, if I want to grow a church and... Uh, I'm going to take plans, methodology that's not biblical and seek to get people in because numbers means that I'm doing it right. No, we're, we're governed by principle. Principles established in Scripture. Ours is to obey Scripture and Scripture alone. You grow a church. You build it upon the faithfulness to Scripture. You build it upon the fellowship of the body. You build it on ministry, not entertainment, not prizes, things of that nature, you see. But that's pragmatism. That's where we are. Another one is existentialism that we're having to deal with. Existentialism. Everything's based upon feelings. I'm an authentic person if I make the decision. doesn't matter what it is. If I feel it's right, I, I still remember years ago when Francis Schaeffer uh, did uh, his film series, How Should We Then Live? And he used an example of uh, uh, helping a little old lady across the street to an existentialist, even if you help her across the street and she gets hit by a car because you helped her, hey, you felt good about helping her. And so that made it a, a good decision. When here again, in reality, we aren't led by feelings. We are led by Scripture. I'll never forget one of our seminary classmates whose wife divorced him, and, and her sole justification was, I've never felt so good in my life. Feelings. Oh, feelings. I mean, that's kind of ridiculous when you think about feelings could be determined by what we eat or whether we slept well or not. But that becomes the foundation for a lot of people's lives. Our lives are governed by obedience. John 14, 15, if you love me, what? You will keep my commandments. See, not governed by feelings. Of course, the big one today is what's known as narcissism, which is self-image. Governed by the divine trinity of me, myself, and I. In many ways, that was governed by this generation where everybody gets a trophy, Having grown up in sports, how, can, how ridiculous can you be? But you see, you don't want Junior to feel bad about himself. 
So you give him a trophy even though he can't do anything in basketball. You, you don't want him to feel bad. Well, how does a child recognize what he does well and what he doesn't do well? How does a child understand what God is calling him to be? If he's awarded for everything that he does, even though he does it lousy. But you've got to feel good about yourself. In education, parents today are called snowplow parents. You ever heard that? Because they're so busy preparing the road for the child that they're not preparing the child for the road. Philosophies of the world that govern people's lives, and yet these are those which are in complete opposition to what God wants us to be as we seek to remain faithful within this world where he has placed us. I'm a, I'm a lover of basketball, and I, I, it's really amazing when you think about... Uh, now, you, you do realize probably, well, let's say arguably, one of the greatest basketball players ever was a guy named Michael Jordan. You know, he was cut off of his ninth-grade basketball team. But he went, and he worked... What would happen if he'd gotten a trophy too? See, guys, these are the philosophies of the world. And it's not just in education, it's in the church. As we seek to build ourselves up in the, in the most holy faith, there's a sense in which there's an accountability that we have to one another. We're all in this together as we seek to move to become what God wants us to be as the body of Christ and as individuals within that body using the gifts, talents, and abilities that he has given to us for his glory and his glory alone. We don't take the methodology of the world and use it. We take biblical truth and use it as we seek to minister as lights in this salt within this earth where he has placed us. And that involves personal growth so that we invest in what God has done in our lives and we take the scripture, the word of God, and use it to mold and shape us to be what he wants us to be. Scripture confronts us where we have sinned. doesn't pat us on the head and say, oh, yeah, Jimmy, you'll do better next time. No, it confronts us with what we're to be. This is part of being molded and shaped into what God wants us to be. This is part of that sanctification process whereby we grow closer and closer to him so that by God's grace we become instruments that he will use for his glory in his glory alone for the building up of the body of Christ. And all of us have gifts. I've probably told you this story before, but uh, again, it's, to me, it's critical. Abraham Kuyper, you've heard that name before, came out of seminary liberal. Goes to his first pastorate, and as a faithful pastor, he's visiting all the people in his church. And he comes to the home of a retired maid. How much education, guys, does it take to be a maid? Where is 
made on the list of, of important jobs, prominent positions. But this lady knew her Bible. And oh, by the way, how much education does it take to be a maid? But she knew her Bible. And she sat this learned man down at her table. And she opened the scripture. Remember the sword of the spirit. We need to know how to handle the scripture. And she wielded it in such a way that God broke this man's heart and brought him to himself. Probably one of the great intellectual leaders of our day. But God using his people who knew, their, who knew the word to mold and shape. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith. If you don't have a consistent reading program, you need to start. You must know how to use your word. You must know the word. If you don't have a consistent reading schedule, please get one. Uh, the great Scottish Presbyterian preacher Robert Murray McShane has an excellent reading program uh, to get you into the scriptures. Uh, also, one thing that's very helpful in terms of building yourselves up in your most holy faith is the idea of having people who, who will hold you accountable, people that are close enough to you as brothers and sisters in the Lord, that if you're doing something wrong, guess who's going to confront you with it? Because, you know, guys, one of the issues we have is we oftentimes fall into the trap of thinking we're pretty important. And that kind of justifies why we do some actions because, you know, I'm in charge here. No. You need people who will hold you accountable, who will wonder why you didn't show up in church or why you didn't come to a Bible study or why did that word slip out of your mouth. See, Accountability partners is it's easier to grow in the faith when you have others who are on the journey with you you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress in a while, you need to check that out again. Remember on his journey, which was difficult as he struggled against the ways of the world, but he had faithful and hopeful who came into his life at different times to do what? To keep him strong, to keep him going on his journey to that celestial city. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, that's the first part of keeping yourselves in the love of God. You deal with the other ones, praying in the Holy Spirit, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Let us pray. Well, Father, we do thank you for the privilege, and it is a privilege to be together in worship we do pray, Father, because it is a struggle, a struggle to stay faithful in the journey. And we need help. Father, strengthen us. Bring others into our lives who will hold us accountable, who will come alongside us in that journey. And may we be faithful as we study Scripture and make Scripture that much more a part of our lives that we might, dear Father, 
keep ourselves in the love of God. For it's in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.